Welcome to footy time. How are we all? We have the intro and sound effects this week. I have to apologize for last week. There were some technical difficulties there, but we're back on track now and on to business. Round 20 is completed. How did your team go? How did your tips go? There were a lot of games there that if you tipped an underdog, you might have thought you were close to pulling off some kind of masterstroke. But nonetheless, there were still a couple of surprising results. And we're going to get into them and a whole lot more on footy time right about now. The Western Bulldogs headed down the highway to GMHBA Stadium on Saturday night. What we ended up seeing could only be described as a catalanche. The Dogs kicked the first four goals of the game. Uh, I was out at this time, but I was following on the phone and then watched the extended highlights later. It did seem like the Dogs were a shot in this game. And with their ability to run and the way they closed Melbourne down on the smaller deck at Marvel last week, I really felt like they would be in this game right until the last few minutes. How wrong was this? The Dogs led 6 goals 5 to 4 goals 6 at the main break. And come the end of the third quarter, they were behind 12-8 to 6-8. So Geelong had kicked 8 goals 2 to the Dogs 3 behinds. That's game. What turned this game was a few things. But number one, I would say the brilliance of Patrick Dangerfield. The Cats have managed his return brilliantly and he's primed nicely for a finals run again and that elusive premiership. Uh, When you have players like this, you're never out of a game, really. When you've got someone like Dangerfield who can win a few clearances and just get momentum running, you're never out of a game. Cam Guthrie was excellent in midfield and Isaac Smith... He's nicely working his way into another contract. His last, I'd say, month and a half has been exceptional. But the main point of this segment is Joel Selwood. 350 games. Has there ever been a more consistent 350 games in the history of the sport? He's been doing it since day dot, and the hunger has just never gone away. He has been the best captain in the comp for a long time, in my view. And only Michael Tuck has played in more finals with 39. Joel has 37. And with a top four finish this year for Geelong and barring injury, that record will be equaled this year. It can be a Milan player for the way he is known to draw the high tackle free kicks. But for me, he's a champion of our game and deservedly on the pedestal. I think that you you absolutely are penciling him in for Hall of Fame. But when it's all said and done, he'll be a massive shot, I reckon, at being a Hall of Fame legend one day. We look at the Hall of Fame legends at the moment, and there's some amazing names there. I just wonder, when it comes to Joel Selwood, and his, when his career's done, what is the instant, um, I guess, disqualifier? for including Joel Selwood with some of the greatest names that have ever, ever played the game. I mean, the CV says it all, really. You know, three-time premiership player, six All-Australian teams, including uh, three captaincies in those All-Australian teams, uh, four-time AFLPA Most Courageous Player Award, uh, three Kaji Greaves medals, so the Geelong Best and Fairest, Rising Star in 2007, most games played as an AFL captain with 227. Most wins as an AFL captain with 160. 
I mean, you can say what you want, <laughs> really. I mean, we love to hate on successful teams and players, but it speaks for itself. And then you watch the man play, and he just leaves nothing in the tank. Nothing in the tank. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch. And for the people that don't love Joel Selwood, I've really just got one thing to say to you. Say what you want. Say you don't like all the, you know, the free kicks and this and, you know, you don't like Geelong and whatever. But you would have loved him to have played for your team all these years. There is not a team in the last 15 years that Joel Selwood would not have made better. <laughs> I challenge any of you to disagree with me there. Mic drop. Dockers shown up. We'll get the Melbourne stuff out of the way early this week, uh, but there was a big game on Friday night at Optus Stadium between the Fremantle Dockers and the Melbourne Demons. Top four clash. The Ds had been bashed from pillar to post in the media this week with some commentators suggesting that players were picking and choosing moments, when to run, when to do the team things, when to put pressure on the opposition. But they had a big point to prove when they took on the top four Fremantle Dockers at Optus Stadium, who also needed a win to cement their place in the top four and arrest this little skid of bad form that they've had lately with a loss and a draw. I was quietly confident about this one. Definitely nervous, but we had been bashed around, as I said. There was a lot of talk about Jackson and Brayshaw's future again in the media, but... Gus ended up signing that new six-year deal on Thursday, and there were a lot of D's fans up and about that day, I can tell you that much. You just felt like it was going to bring some some great buzz to the team, for a team that had not had been a hard few weeks. And that's what happened. The D's brought pressure right from the beginning. They spread and covered grass well. Uh, the defensive structure was on point. I mean... It was a very average-looking surface, but uh, they were able to cover it very nicely. The Dockers could not go anywhere. The defensive side of the game was just back for Melbourne, with May, Lever, and Petty all in. They were just unable to move the ball for her. Lever did get some ankle injury, um, and he did... I think he rolled it, and then he rolled it again later on. Uh, but he still tried hard regardless, and Melbourne went on to suffocate the Freo forwards. Rory Lobb was very average. Matt Tabiner had an absolute shocker, and Logue was a band-aid solution. He kicked a nice goal, but this is the problem with Frio. I said it last week. Is this forward group going to win Frio a flag in the next, I don't know, three to five years? We'll come back to that, but I want to talk tactics. When you win a game against an opposition the last time you met, and there may have been certain tactics that helped you get to that victory. You have to be very wary about employing the exact same tactics again. Justin Longmuir went with Griffin Logue tagging Stephen May again, and James Aish sitting on Clayton Oliver. I thought Aish did a good job again, actually, to be fair. And yeah, it was well known how much he slowed him down at the first game this year at the MCG. Um... The Logue job on May the first time round, I, I noticed in the lead-up to this game this week that that was being talked about a fair bit. 
especially on Footy Classified by Ross Lyon on Wednesday. I really think that that move was a bit overrated. And <laughs> the reason I say that is because May went out concussed in that game in the first quarter. So that's a, a very small sample size. There wasn't really enough film on that move to see if it actually worked out or not. But a lot of people were saying that that was <laughs> one of the things that got us, well, got Frio the win, was that James H went to Oliver, slowed him down. We all know Oliver had 24 touches in the first half and then only 12 in the next. So H did a good job slowing him. Uh, and then Griffin Logue was playing a negating role on May. But it's the most talked about tagging role that happened for one quarter that I've ever heard. <laughs> anyway, um, but um, yeah, look, once again, that they were getting some fortune moving the ball quickly with Mel- against Melbourne, taking the game on, trying to duke around players on the mark and, uh, you know, trick them, so just run past them. That happened a lot in the first game, and they were trying it again now. Uh, they were trying to get the ball to ground up forward, get it sort of pinging around and have their small forwards like Frederick and Lockie Schultz get on to the end of it. But this time around, they were not able to do this enough. And also this time around, Melbourne's midfield was much, much better. Jack Viney, 33 possessions with 16 contested. Best on ground by a stretch. You love this kind of game from Jack Viney and he relishes playing in these conditions. Christian Petrarca, 30 possessions with about 15 contested and 10 score involvements. It's actually funny because uh, in the messenger group we have for <laughs> Melbourne uh, friends, uh, I, I sort of do a bit of a votes thing at the end, one to five, and I had Petrarca with the one vote uh, because I just thought at the time, I thought, yeah, look, he, he was very prolific with winning the ball, but uh, you know, he missed that set shot out on the fall and... Uh, it was a game where goals were at a premium, and I just thought, yeah, you know, he butchered it a little bit. Uh, but Dan was very quick to point out to me that I may have had him a little bit low in those votes because he really did play an amazing game. And I, like I said, I thought he butchered a lot of his dirty possessions. And when I checked the disposal efficiency, he was running at 86%. So, yeah... I don't know, maybe this was just one of those games where you've become accustomed to Christian just racking up these possessions, but also getting a certain level of damage as well. I mean, you know, another thing Dan likes to say is that he is the king of the score involvement, and he was right on that this time. Uh, He's not always the playmaker. He's quite often the play starter. So it becomes not all about assists, and feeding it to the guy who kicks the goal, quite often Petrarca is the one that starts the chain in a lot of ways. And he's very, very good at it. So as well as being a bit of a playmaker, he he really does sort of initiate those chains as well. So it was a good spot up from Dan, and he was absolutely right. Uh, Gus Brayshaw uh, celebrated his new contract. He started in the middle and ended up with 28 he was fantastic, I thought. Uh, his just fifty ability to win 50-50s, Brayshaw, at the moment, is very, very high. Very high level. They were all over them in the engine room and went on to get the much-deserved victory. So, a very good win for Melbourne. We have to talk about Freo. They have proven to be very good this year. But they have been useless in the wet. You need to play a brand of footy that stacks up in all conditions. That's really the bottom line. We've mentioned 
their forward problems. And we've also mentioned that they're probably going to be getting Luke Jackson. I'll say it again. I don't think he solves them. Sorry. I don't think he solves their forward problems. I'm also wondering if this potential big coup that they're planning is starting to unsettle some of their existing players who may possibly have to make way for the men. You know, I'm looking at guys like Sean Darcy who just didn't look to handle the occasion that well. Uh, you know, there's obviously Lob and you know, maybe another couple of names that didn't play on Friday. But I just wonder how all this talk affects not only a team about to lose the player, Melbourne, but the one making it very publicly known that they are in for that player, Freo. Especially before the season and Premiership Challenge is even over. Do you believe in curses? The Brisbane Lions have played 11 games at the MCG since their last win at the ground. The talk has largely been that they need to show everyone that they can win at the home of football if they are going to be any sort of Premiership threat in 2022. Unfortunately, they are now still waiting for that moment as they squandered a 42-point second-quarter lead to the Richmond Tigers with a top-four spot on the line on Sunday afternoon. The key here into what happened is Brisbane's scores from defensive half because we know they're a great, I don't know, score from winning the ball in defensive 50 team. In the first half, Brisbane converted 34 defensive chains into 16 inside 50s, which yielded six goals and three behinds. In the second half, they had 30 defensive chains, only four less, but only seven inside 50s and just three behinds. Yeah, says a lot. Joe Danaher kicked three goals in the first quarter, then went missing for the rest of the game. And it wasn't like he just, I don't know, had a few possessions and, and missed shots or whatever. No, he couldn't get anywhere near a contest in the second half. And this really does say it all, to be honest. And, you know, you could say that for a few of the other players, but he was hot at the start. Same with Charlie Cameron. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. So... Is this a hoodoo or not for the Brisbane Lions? I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm not the expert. I'm still going to say no at this stage. Although, there were a plethora of things that went wrong for them to lose this game. And I think most notably was that Mitch Robinson 20 metres out miss. <laughs> but the fact is that they have played on this ground 11 times in the last eight years. Sounds like a bit, and it sounds like a long time, but that's not even twice a year on average, really. I know that for a team that's wanting to stake their claim as one of the best, you probably have to win here, but the Lions' best football is still as good as anyone's in the league, really. And we saw that in the first half. But, and there is a but, there is a big but. The more losses you have at a particular venue, the more it can play on your mind and the more people talk about it. Look at the Essendon finals win drought. I mean, that is, to me, that is a really stupid 
statistic. That is a really dumb drought to be giving Essendon fans crap about. As it, it's like it almost implies that you you make finals every single year since two thousand and four, and that it, oh you've you've just failed every time. I mean, there's teams that go ages without making a, a final. <laughs> so, um, you know, but on the other hand, I guess you expect a club like Essendon to have won a final more recently. But the point is here that the more that something like this goes on, the more that the media starts talking about it, the more that opposition fans start talking about it, and the more it becomes a thing. It becomes a sideshow. You know, an albatross around the neck. So, it's... You know, it's something that they will want to get done sooner rather than later. And the next time that the Brisbane will play at the MCG will likely be in the finals. So, yeah, it's just something that you'd rather not get out of hand. That's all. Uh, take nothing away from Richmond. That second half was fantastic. They completely suffocated the lines and they just wouldn't let them exit defensive 50 with ease at all, really. I mean, yeah, just flick the switch. Absolutely. Um, I said recently that Dion Prestia seems to be the only one in that Richmond midfield who can just match it with his running when the opposition is getting on top. Um, And once again, this was the eyeball verdict of that first quarter. They were getting overrun by the Lions midfield, but the Prestia running was just the, really was the only thing keeping him in it. It was the only thing that gave you a bit of hope that they could maybe turn things around in that midfield. And Shy Bolton, well, 10 score involvements, 9 inside 50s for the game. I mean, that's premier stuff right there. That's really, really good. You just can't, yeah, can't get around that. I was just reading this article on Zero Hanger by Mitch Keating. Uh, so this is, I guess, the first foray into the trade period for 2022. Um, but it it was about the two players at GWS that have been reportedly floated as potential trade options, uh, Nick Haynes and Lockie Whitfield, two important players. Um, and it's just got me thinking. I mean, this is going to get more and more spotlight as we draw closer to the end of the season. We're not quite talking about it right now, but it will get more traction. Um, that look, Those are not the first two players that I've heard being touted for moves. Tim Taranto, there's a bit of uncertainty here, and Victorian clubs are trying to maybe lure him back. You've got Bobby Hill, Tanner Brune, expected to, uh, you know, maybe signal their intentions to go back to Victoria. And you got Jacob Hopper, who I think signed a two-year deal last year. I mean, you know, the end of that's going to come up pretty quickly. And he's also been rumoured to be gaining some interest, uh, looking like, you know, it's Geelong, Richmond, according to Mitch, uh, and Adelaide even. So there's definitely a good crop of talent there at GWS. There always is, as we know. But how many of them are going to be there? And do we know which ones are in question? Because I feel like you could throw a blanket around a bunch of these guys right now 
whose names aren't Josh Kelly, Toby Green, and Stephen Coniglio, and say they are potential trade targets. Or if a decent offer came up, they could be shifted. It's not an easy position to be in for a club that still hasn't settled on a long-term coach. So that's something that, as a new coach, you really want to know as soon as possible. What is the list going to look like for the upcoming season? You want to know what players are staying and what players are going, what players are contracted, what players aren't, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, how quickly can we convince uh, the ones that are possibly umming and ahhing? How quickly can we, um, you know, show them that the future is bright here? Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's just a, a fair job there for the new coach, whoever it is. And obviously these guys are probably waiting to see who the new coach is. In all honesty, uh, but but there's a lot to think about list management-wise for this club. I mean, I heard I'm sure it was Dave Matthews come out and say a few weeks ago that uh, it's a good destination club for a new coach because uh, we're very happy with their list and the, the talent. Well, I don't really see it that way because it could go pear-shaped if uh, even just two or three of these players decided to walk out. I mean, yeah, they've maintained a nice nucleus, but it's. But, but really, has any player at GWS improved this year in 2022? You know, can you put your hand on your heart and name one player there that's taken their game to a new level? I mean, Tom Green has been very impressive. I'm a big fan of Green. You could make a case for him, but I just don't, I don't see anyone there has gone to a new level. I mean, Harry Hilmerberg a few years ago, I thought he was just going to be an absolute jet up forward. You know, you've got Mark McVeigh moving him down back now, and I think he's really struggled with that move. I, I don't know. I just feel like uh, this club is really sort of at sea at the moment, and t- there's a lot of people in the wilderness. And to hear the number of names here that could possibly be linked elsewhere, it is, yeah, it's not, it's not a good time. It's not a good time there. Uh, and that game on the weekend, the Battle of the Bridge or whatever, they were atrocious. They were absolutely atrocious. And, yeah, very disappointing. I think one of the key differences in that game with the Swans and the Giants, because both sides have got a fair bit of talent, I would say. But the big difference was the level of hunger that the Swans showed. You know, you've got guys on the GWS side... In that game, they just didn't look hungry. They didn't want to run both ways. They didn't want to put in any hard yards to help a teammate. They just, yeah, I don't know. They're just really lacking a lot of heart. Whereas you look over at the Swans, and they just want to, They every week I see the Swans, they just want to bust a gut to go that bit further. They are just playing like their whole career depends on it. And then you've got guys like Paddy McCartan, who are just, taking their chance with both hands and not going to let anything happen to it and not going to let it slip at all. It's just absolute contrast between those two teams at the moment. And yeah, uh, like I said, I think it'll all come down to whoever the new coach is. Then things will go from there. But it's a very worrying sign. It's that time again. Top four and top eight watch. And for the first time this week, I'm going to go with a losing team. And their fortunes 
for the top four spot, but coming off a loss. So it's the Fremantle Dockers. Uh, just quietly, I had some great notes on this, but um, yeah, they didn't sync across to my phone note program. And long story short, I've lost them. So I'm going to have to do this off the top of my head. So um, yeah, this loss for the Fremantle Dockers on Friday night. We talked a bit about it before. How much damage has it done to their top four hopes? They've been in bad form. They've lost to the Sydney Swans, they drew to the Tigers, and now they've lost at home again to the Ds. So we've talked about how they've got some issues that are coming up. But it it's not all despair for Dockers fans. They can very much still make this top four. It's not going to be easy, but they can. They have a run home as follows. Bulldogs at Marvel. West Coast in the Derby. Giants at Monaco Oval. So, as I said, the top four hopes aren't totally shot. But they're going to need some help. They will need to win all three of these games. The toughest of these games is obviously going to be the Bulldogs this week. And if they can get over the Doggies, they will be on track for... 15 wins plus a draw if they win the last two. So they're a good chance of making the top four if they win out, uh, but not guaranteed. However, the difference between winning out and going two wins and one loss is dramatic. Two wins and one loss, not going to do it. Not going to do it. If they lose to the Dogs this week, an elimination final is almost certain. Unless everything goes right for them. Uh, but yeah, that there's a big difference between those two scenarios. Uh, and if they lose all three of these games somehow, they could actually still miss the eight. <laughs> but no, look, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Freo is secure in the eight. But yeah, look, they really, really need to win this week against the Dogs. It's a huge game. Huge game. They, yeah, these last three weeks has really shot them in the foot. And yeah, like I said, there's still a shot at top four, but it's looking a little bit shaky at the moment. We're going to look at Richmond for the next part of this segment and the top eight watch. Uh, so the Tigers, as we mentioned, had that magnificent win over the Brisbane Lions. It was not looking great, but they managed to pull it out and really hit back some of that form and finally win one of these close ones. One of them finally went their way, and they didn't end up on the wrong end of it. So, that's a big win, and I think that that was a really pivotal win for the Tigers. That There was a chance that if they couldn't get that one done, then finals could be a, a bit on the outs. But, let's look at their remaining games. Port Adelaide at Adelaide Oval, Hawthorne at the MCG, Essendon at the MCG. The draw comes in very handy for the Tigers here. And and really, it doesn't do a lot of favours for the Bulldogs that the Tigers got this win. Because uh, the Dogs are now out of the projected eight looking in. But the Tigers... Yeah, I, I think the Tigers would be favourite to get the eighth spot now. And if the Tigers can just get this Port Adelaide win... I see no issues with them skittling Hawthorne and Essendon in the last two games of the season. And they're going to play finals. No doubt about it. 
unfortunately, the last three weeks has has hurt their chances for top four. I really think that if they got those wins, or at least two of those wins, the Gold Coast game, the North game, and the win that was the draw against the Dockers, I think you would be looking at a team primed for top four and very dangerous. But that's not the way it's happened, unfortunately. They were right there, but... It's not the case, but they can still do a fair bit of damage. And they can actually get, if, if things go right, they could get themselves a home elimination final. Uh, i tell you what, I would not want to be playing the Tigers in week one of the finals. Yeah, that's, yeah, you'd want no part of that, that's for sure. Let's finish up, we're going to talk about something we don't usually talk about, and it's the next batch of AFL draftees. So... Six days ago, uh, Cal Toomey came up with his latest Phantom Draft, and it's the July ranking of the prospects. So, which ones are vying for the top spots in the draft at this stage? So the NAB AFL Championships are done, I believe, and at this stage, according to Cal Toomey, if the draft was tomorrow, Will Ashcroft would be the number one pick in the draft. Um... Sandringham Jarrigans. Ashcroft has been, you know, he's a midfielder, and he's been very, very good, obviously. <laughs> uh, he's averaged 35 disposals at the NAB League level, 24 at VFL level, and 33 in three games for Vic Metro as the best player of the under 18 championships. He is a Brisbane father son prospect whose dad, Marcus, is a triple premiership player. He stepped it up in the carnival again, including his 38 disposal, 10 clearance, 10 inside 50, and one goal game against South Australia. He is a ball getter with acceleration, skills, smarts, and a very similar playing style to 2018 number one pick and Carlton star Sam Walsh, a player who Will has unsurprisingly studied very closely. Uh, 182 centimetres, 78 kilos, He's the front runner at this stage, it looks like, according to Kel. But number two, we're looking at George Wardlaw. And so he was having a good season, but unfortunately he did pick up a hammy injury and missed Vic Metro's three-game run at the National Carnival. He does remain a contender, though, for this number one pick, and his performances this season have been fantastic. Uh, he's an Oakley Chargers boy. And his game against the Dragons in round one of the Nebel League was fantastic. He, he's averaged 21 disposals for the season, uh, but he has also been judged the leading player for the NAB AFL Academy against Collingwood's VFL side. Uh, he's a powerful, competitive midfielder, and he's got a bit of spring in his step. He can go forward and kick a goal too. So he's, his, I guess, your nuggety sort of midfielder. Um, we'll move on to number three, Harry Shizzle. So he brings something different to the top end of the draft pool. He's another Sandringham Dragon, and he's a forward midfielder. He is an exciting, polished, classy half forward he, who can actually mark above his head as well. Makes opportunities, kicks goals, and kicks goals in a range of different ways. He has booted 21 goals in eight games for the Sandringham Dragons this season. 
He's got a nice sidestep, a shimmy, a spin, all the tricks that make him one of the more fun players to watch in this draft pool. He kicked four goals against the Allies in Vic Metro's first carnival game and has also starred in another game, I believe, against Western Australia. Likes to spend some time in the midfield as well and has had a few 30-plus disposal games for Dragons. He is another interesting one, 184 centimetres, 77 kilos. We're looking at very similar sort of height and weight ratios here in the top three. But those three are the ones vying for the, the top spots at the moment. We've got a few others, like Elijah Tsardis. Uh He's a 187 centimetre midfielder from uh, Oakley Chargers. Uh, there's Jai Clark, who's making a very good uh, play for, for top honours. Uh, he's the Geelong Falcons hope. Uh, you've got uh, Cameron McKenzie, another Sandringham Dragon. It's a very good Sandringham Dragons class this year. And then you've got Aaron Cadman, who many think is probably the best key position player in this draft. He's a key forward, and he's a very exciting key forward too. He's 196 centimetres. Uh, I feel like that's going to <laughs> increase by the end of this season. Uh, the guy is growing very, very quickly. He's 88 kilos. And he is from the great, the greater Western Victoria Rebels and Vic Country. He has definitely put himself in the frame as one of the first key position players to be drafted. He's a left footer. We all love a left footer. And he has a lot of similarities to Jeremy Cameron. And he actually he says he bases his game on, on Cameron as well. A few similarities to Harry Mackay at the same age. But I think a lot of the people are saying he moves and kicks a lot like Jeremy Cameron. Marks and leads well. He's got the goal sense. He knows where the goals are. He booted seven goals for Vic Country across three games, as well as 23 in the Napa League this year. He's had... Um, yeah, he's just a forward that gets himself involved. And that's what you like to see, especially in the modern game. You want a forward that can do it all. You want a forward that can go for that contested mark, hopefully clunk it. But if they don't, they're doing other things. They're making second efforts. They're getting the ball to ground. They're fighting for the ball when it's on the ground. They're trying to... You know, fight for a position, quick handball to a, a running player. You know, you've got to be a bit more complete as a key forward these days. And forwards that really sort of think that their job's done straight after they uh, go for the contested mark and don't get it or whatever, they, they're just not lasting at the moment, I find. So, yeah, there's, there's a little bit on the draft class. We'll hopefully be able to revisit that maybe in a few weeks' time and see how that's tracking. But there's... A very, very exciting pool here of talent. So, yeah, yeah, really looking forward to, to the draft and, uh, yeah, good to see, um, yeah, some future prospects. Well, that is the end of footy time for this week. Uh, yeah, can't believe that there's only three games left for the season. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big, big finish. We've got some massive games this week. Hopefully your team can get you the performance that you want because it's all going to count here. Anyone taking backward steps or forward steps, it's just going to be, it's yeah, it's going to be chaotic. And then we've got the finals. So hopefully your team is doing the right things and they can make you happy this week. But we'll be back next week for more footy time. In the meantime, bye for now.